Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from Psalm 126. I know there are Bibles on the back table, and you're welcome to help yourself when you come into the service. It's the Version Common English Bible, I believe. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like people who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nation, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Amen. Thank you for that reading, Verna. So uh, today is on uh, on the Christian calendar. This is Reformation Sunday, uh, sort of a reminder of some of the changes in the church over the years. So Mennonites have taken this opportunity to uh, use uh, a Sunday morning as a as a teaching time to tell some of our story, and so that I'm, that's what I'm hoping to do. Uh, every now and then I get little reminders that not everybody is as uh, excited about Mennonite history as, as I am, so I'll try to keep it, uh, keep it light. Uh, every now and then we, uh, we observe uh, trauma or, uh, or <clears throat> stress in, in another relationship. And somehow between, uh, between times that we see somebody... Uh, behind closed doors or, or in their own way, that trauma is resolved. And we don't know how. Uh, we don't know what happened. We, we know that there was harm done, and then all of a sudden there's peace again. And then we wonder, wait, how? Are we just going to pretend this, this other thing didn't happen? And sometimes that's what the rest of us have to do because it's not really our business what happened, how things were resolved. Um, I, I, I may have lost some uh, ability to give marriage advice, but from time to time uh, it still gets called upon. Um, people ask if it's, if it's healthy to fight in front of your children. And uh, some experts say, uh, no, it isn't. I say it is. Um, as long as you also make up in front of your children so that we are demonstrating for the people who are copying us uh, the ways that fights uh, get resolved. Um, in the passage that we have today, we see a kind of a transformation. A transformation between, uh, a transformation from uh, stress and difficulty to joy, rejoicing and celebration. Uh, it says that uh, the people, uh, those who plant with tears, reap the harvest with joyful shouts. Now, um, this is a, a, a tricky thing for us to do, especially in, in today's world where we sort of have to pretend to be happy a lot of times. Um, one of our common greetings is, how are you doing? This this isn't uh, really worth analysis sometimes, except 
there's really only one possible answer. Fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. Right? This is how, this is how we talk to each other. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, good. How are you doing? Yeah, all right. That's, as, that's about as negative as you can get in, in common conversation. Yeah, I'm doing all right. Uh, <clears throat> because we sort of feel pressure. And if it's a trusted friend, if it's somebody that you care about, uh, and you, it's the only, only the two of you, then you can say, listen, I'm, I'm feeling some stuff. And I hope that you have people like that in your life. But this is how we interact with each other. We hide these stories. Uh, so this, this week, there was a conversation online that I was a part of. Um, if you're going to study the history of Christian theology, you're probably going to read something by John Calvin every now and then. Uh, John Calvin was, was a, a legal expert who became a theology expert, and he wrote uh, theology books like legal books. And John Calvin doesn't write good things about us. Uh, he writes about Anabaptists and how they're misguided and how they um, are angry and uh, not trustworthy and all of these things. So somebody online said, when John Calvin talks about Anabaptists, which people are he, is he talking about? And so what the, the theologian, this uh, colleague of mine was asking is, Historically, which, which group, which geographic group is he talking about so that we can understand why John Calvin was so angry? And my explanation, which, which other people uh, seem, seem to like and agree with, said, well, the, the Anabaptists that John Calvin was talking about didn't exist. Uh, sort of in the same way that when we talk about other people we don't like, very often those people don't exist. So if I'm going to talk about Americans, uh, and I'm going to talk about that at a, in a foreign context, right? then I have memories of when I traveled to other parts of the world, and there was another tourist who was being really loud, and who was being annoying, and pretended to know everything about the whole world, and didn't seem to respect the people around them. Most of the time, those were Americans right? No offense, um, but when you've seen it happen a bunch of times, it kind of sticks in your memory. So sometimes it would be easy to talk about Americans, right? And then that's in my voice what I'm saying, yeah, Americans are like that. Well, nobody else knows the background story of why I'm saying Americans like that. And when I'm talking about Americans, then that's the group that I'm talking about, except I don't I don't know their story. I don't know uh, what makes them talk louder. If, if you grow up in a big family, you have to talk loud, right? There, there are reasons that people act that way that I don't know about. And so then when I'm talking about Americans, then the people that I'm talking about don't really exist. There aren't a group of Americans who get together and say, okay, when we go overseas, we're going to be loud and obnoxious, and that's just how we're going to travel, okay? Everybody's agreed? Good. All right. That doesn't happen. Right? And the same thing would happen if we're talking about people in other political parties. And this is what we're trying to get at on uh, Thursday when we had our interfaith dialogue event here. We wanted to bring Christians and Muslims together so that when we're talking about Muslims, we're actually talking about real people. Right? And so when we talk about the people around us, our neighbors, it's important that we talk about real people. If we're talking about immigrants, we should be talking about the immigrants that we have gotten to know, 
not just immigrants who are draining the system. No, we're talking about immigrants, our neighbors, our friends. So anyways, back to the, back to the story. <clears throat> so I explained in this, uh, in this conversation that in the 1530s, so just as the Anabaptist movement was starting, Menno Simons was still a Catholic priest, um, <clears throat> George Blaurock, Conrad Grable, all these guys, uh, you know, their work had just kind of uh, finished for various reasons. Very, very early in the Anabaptist movement, there were a group of people who uh, decided that uh, they had interpreted correctly from the Bible when Jesus was going to come back. And Jesus was going to come back on Easter Sunday, 1535. And he was going to come back to the German city of Munster. Uh, I've been to Munster. It's a beautiful little city. Uh, <clears throat> So they decided this was where Jesus was going to come back to, and so, of course, this is where they wanted to be. And this, it, this is a, one of the stories from history that needs to be made into a movie because it's, uh, it just has all of the drama of that. And it sounds uh, exaggerated, but I've got history books. You can, you can read it in my office downstairs. So anyways, as they were moving into the city where they decided Jesus was coming back to, well, they thought, well, we need to make this a city that Jesus would want to come back to. And so they got involved in politics and pretty soon had taken over the town council and were making rules to purify the city. And pretty soon everybody who wasn't an Anabaptist left. Um, and pretty soon they started to come back with soldiers. But it was a well-fortified city. It had a huge wall around it. The wall is gone. It's been replaced with a beautiful little biking path. Um, anyways, uh, they took over the city. It was, I could tell you the details. You wouldn't believe me. It was crazy. But anyways, the soldiers had surrounded the city. They couldn't get any food or water in. They couldn't get supplies. People couldn't travel freely. It was just a matter of time. But still, within the city, the Anabaptist leaders who were there were becoming less and less mentally stable as far as everybody else around them was, was concerned. And pretty soon, the soldiers came in, attacked, and killed thousands of people. This is one of the embarrassing stories in Anabaptist history because it was a bunch of people who believed similar things to us who behaved in a very, very unchristian way. But when John Calvin was talking about Anabaptists, he was thinking about those Anabaptists, not the, the regular peace-loving, community-building, uh, hard-working Anabaptists that lived in various parts of, of Europe at that time. And so that's what I explained in this conversation. He's talking about Anabaptists that don't exist, the kind of Anabaptists who moved into Munster but aren't there anymore. That was part of who they were. That was their story. That was their whole identity um, that everybody else had kind of thrust upon all of the Anabaptists everywhere. So um, in, uh, in Poland or Prussia, when a whole bunch of Anabaptists moved there, uh, one of the, I don't know if she was a, a queen or some uh, authority figure, recognized, hey, these aren't the crazy Anabaptists that we've heard about. We need to give them a new name because that's not them. And 
well, they all follow Menno Simons, let's call them Mennonites. And that's kind of where that came from. Because Munster was our story for so long uh, that we had to replace it somehow. Um, we tell stories about ourselves, but we filter out the bad ones. But when David says, let those who plant with tears reap the harvest with joyful shouts, you can't plant with tears if you are hiding your tears, if you're not allowing your tears to flow. Um, Another Anabaptist story I wanted to tell um, this, is, this is a fun little book to read, uh, and I say that sarcastically. Um, this is The Martyr's Mirror. It's a, it's a collection of stories of martyrs. Um, these are our spiritual ancestors who died for their faith. And uh, a lot of times they left behind uh, letters to loved ones. They left behind songs that they wrote. Uh, They left behind stories about their life, and those stories are collected into here. So if you want to know how many um, Mennonites died for their faith, well, enough to fill this book. Well, there's uh, a man by the name of Yellis Mathis, uh, probably saying that wrong. So he he writes a letter. uh, He's writing a letter to his wife. And uh, he's, he's going to die the next day, according to this, uh, to this letter. And so he's, he's writing a very emotional letter, uh, but a very spiritual letter. So um, as you hear these words, hear it through that context. Here's a man in a prison cell uh, who's somehow been given a pen and paper, uh, but he's, he's going to die the next day. And this is kind of older language. Uh, but it allow it to sound a little uh, poetic. He writes, Oh, my affectionately beloved lamb, he's writing to his wife, I think our hour is fast approaching, for it seems that the ruler of this world will come this night. Hence, I beseech you, by the bleeding wounds of our dear Lord Jesus, and for the sake of the eternal salvation of your soul, that you will never let it leave your heart, how I have walked before you. Right? Most people, when they uh, write letters to their spouses, it's, uh, hey, don't forget milk on your way home from work. Right? Like, this has an entirely different feel. Right? This, is, this is heavy. This is heavy stuff. Um, the, uh, the early Anabaptists also read from uh, a, a bigger Bible than, than we do. There are uh, books uh, that fit more within the Catholic, uh, the Catholic Bible, the Apocrypha, than, than we read. Um, so, and he quotes that, he says, Hence, I desire with Sirach, uh, so that's one of the books, that you remember in all your undertakings what he says, namely, my son, whatever thou takest in hand, remember the end, and thou shalt never sin. Uh, and that has a, a heaviness to it, too. Uh, those, uh, a part of that, uh, those were my grandfather's last words to my mother. Remember the end. Um, And my mother, I think, was hoping for different words. I think she was hoping for something positive, something faith-building, maybe something nurturing, uh, maybe an apology. I don't know. I don't know what she was specifically hoping for. Uh, 
But I remember she was disappointed. Remember the end. I wanted something uplifting. My son, whatsoever thou takest in hand, remember the end, and thou shalt never sin. Uh, I've been researching prayer a little bit lately, trying to figure out uh, what has Mennonite prayer looked like over, over the years. And it's not easy to, to figure out because uh, a lot of it wasn't written down. Um, but a lot of it has this kind of feel to it uh, historically that remember, uh, you might die tomorrow or uh, we might die tomorrow and so uh, God keep us safe despite that. Pre- uh, prepare our souls, that kind of thing. And uh, so this is written into uh, a lot of religious teaching. Remember the end, and thou shalt never sin. If you are properly thinking about the passage of time, uh, then you will be equipped to fight off temptation. So when you realize that your life is temporary, when you realize that your brief time on this earth is filled with only so little time and so few actions, you better make those actions count. Well, then all of a sudden, you're motivated to do good. Um, but if you think you've got lots of time and none of it matters, well, then it's going to go entirely differently. Um, <clears throat> just a few more little uh, excerpts here. Uh, so he writes uh, still to his wife here, therefore, flee to him. And he's, he's talking about God. Flee to him for refuge in your great distress. Remember that his ear is not heavy, that he cannot hear you, and his hand is not shortened, that he cannot help you, for his eyes are upon his saints. Uh, And there's a quotation there from Psalm 34. Uh, And then he, he writes a little bit later on here, I pray for you, for those who so hear in tears, shall hereafter reap in great joy. Now these words have deeper meaning. Right? If, if it's uh, us thinking about our own, uh, our own pain, which I don't want to diminish anybody's pain. If we think about our tears, uh, they generally fro- flow from a little less trauma uh, than what Yellis Mathis is, is writing here. So if we could reach back into time, if we could stand with the wife of Yellis Mathis, it doesn't say her name here, I don't think. If we could stand with her afterwards and reassure her, what would we say? Could we say to her, that the tears that you have sown have borne joyful fruit. Well, I, I think we could. We could say that we have this book. We've collected those stories. The people motivated by the same faith of your husband survived. Uh, they built churches and they moved across the world and they brought the, go- the gospel of of Jesus around the world with them. And so, uh, as other people have said, that the blood of the martyrs became the seeds of the church. Now, I could tell a whole bunch more stories, uh, but I'm guessing I'm not going to sell you a lot of copies of the martyr's mirror. 
Uh, if, if we were Amish, this would be a, a standard wedding gift. Um, so if you thought your wedding gifts were awkward, this would be even worse. Uh, but this is our story. So, so what do we do with our stories? Uh, it seems that sometimes we want to hide those stories just like most uh, Anabaptist historians and preachers don't tell the story of Munster because it's embarrassing. We want to tell stories of our victories. We want to tell stories of our strengths. But it's important and necessary for us to continue to tell the stories of our weakness and the stories of our healing and uh, recovery. Um, Historians have gone through some of these stories um, and gone through uh, the testimony offered by Anabaptists as they were about to be uh, sentenced. And uh, most of the Anabaptists were uh, common people. They were peasants. Most of them weren't educated, uh, university-educated professors and priests. Only a few had that uh, distinction. But when they went to the uh, stand and they were asked to explain themselves to justify why they had transgressed against the great state church, well, they had answers. Uh, They could explain who they were based on the passages that they had remembered. And these passages were were collected uh, for uh, for other people to read and, and repeat and also that collection, excuse me, has, has survived to this day. And so this passage, Psalm 126, is, is one of those that would have been spoken at, the, uh, at their testimonies, at their trials. Uh, and it was broken into categories. And this passage here fits into the category that's called the reward for the pious. The reward for the pious. And here it is. The reward for your piety is that you will plant with tears and reap with joyful shouts. <clears throat> that wouldn't make it onto a, a promotional brochure, uh, to, to say the least. That come walk with us, worship with us, and you will plant with tears and reap with joy. Maybe it would. I don't know, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to put it on the on the front of the bulletin anytime soon either. <clears throat> but this is our story. This is our reward. This is the path that we that we walk. <clears throat> uh, one last uh, little story of, of Mennonite history. Uh, there's a there's a figure. Uh, there's a person that makes it into some of the stories that that the Anabaptists would would tell each other, and not just the Anabaptists, but a lot of people uh, in in Europe 500 years ago, they would tell tell stories of a man that they would call Karshtans, and uh, he was a a mythical figure in the same sense that I was mentioning before. He didn't exist, Um, but Karsht Hans, Hans you'll know is, is John, uh, and karst would be a sort of a gardening tool. Uh, so he would be uh, John the gardener or whatever. So some kind of label, this is a simple man. And there would be stories of priests and professors who would come to town 
to, to speak to the common people, to tell them to give more money to the church, would tell them about how evil their festivals and celebrations were, and Karsht Hans would debate them. And Karsht Hans would make them look like a fool. And Karsht Hans would send them away confused. And who was Karsht Hans? Was he educated? No, he was a simple man, but in his simplicity, he possessed more wisdom than, than the learned people. Uh, these stories, uh, I'm sort of, I've read them secondhand in the sense that they were translated uh, and then scholars repeated the generalities, but none of the specifics have, have survived. So if you know somebody who wants to read through some 16th century German, then we can work together on this. But there's, there, I think there's a beauty to that. And it isn't uh, unique to Mennonites that we have a resentment towards the ivory tower elites. This isn't, this isn't a new thing. We have a resentment towards them because they are removed from our lives and yet they want to tell us how to live. And in the ivory tower, you read a lot of books, you'll collect a lot of stories, but you won't feel a lot of pain. You won't walk with people. You won't experience uh, what the common people are experiencing. And so when they, people would tell stories of Karsht Hans, it was this, this joke about how out of touch the elites were. And, and this is who, who Jesus was. Jesus stood up to the elites, the religious elites, the the educated elites in his society. And he was in a position to understand our pain, our suffering. Jesus walks with us. Uh, there's another passage, the, the last one I'll, I'll look at uh, today, from Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, <clears throat> near the end, so uh, this, uh, the previous passage was about a high priest of, of a different order. And the writer of Hebrews is explaining how Jesus is a priest, but a different kind of priest. So I'll, I'll read this passage from, from Hebrews. It says, The others who became priests are numerous because death prevented them from continuing to serve. In contrast, he, Jesus, holds the office of priest permanently because he continues to serve forever. This is why he can completely save those who are approaching God through him, because he always lives to speak with God for them. It's appropriate for us to have this kind of high priest, holy, innocent, incorrupt, separate from sinners, and raised high above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day like the other high priests, first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. The law appoints people who are prone to weakness as high priests, but the content of the solemn, but the content of the solemn pledge, which came after the law, appointed a son who has been made perfect forever. You see, the priests, the high priests here, the priests in the, in, the, in, uh, in the early Anabaptist movement, they had their own flaws, and their own flaws separated them from God, but also separated them from the people. 
But Jesus is a different kind of priest for us. Jesus is the kind of priest who is above us, is pure enough to be above us, and yet has experienced pain, has felt his own pain, and feels our pain and is able to feel our pain. So when we tell stories of our pain, whether it's our pain, when we tell old stories like this about our identity, Christ walks that pain with us. Christ experiences and carries that pain with us. That's how he understands us, because we have experienced our pain. Christ has experienced his pain. And that pain is our story only because it is ended. The pain is only our story because Christ will lift us to joy. So it will be our story, too, that we have sowed with tears, that we have planted with our own tears, and yet a harvest will come that will be joyful to us and will be joyful to the people around us. One of the reasons we don't talk about each other's pain is that we don't know how to fix it. We don't know how to contextualize it. We might find ways of understanding our own pain of what's happened to us, but we hesitate to try to talk about somebody else's pain because we don't want to insensitively minimize uh, the extent of their pain. But when we speak about our own pain, uh, then we earn credibility. Then people are willing to walk with us because they know that we have a real story, that we are being real with ourselves. But we don't, uh, we don't use our pain as a, as a ticket to sort of purchase some sincerity from the other person. We use our pain to demonstrate that we are real, that we can connect with other people, and that we share their hope of one day uh, harvesting joy from those seeds. So uh, we're going to share a communion meal together. And uh, our theme this year is uh, the foolishness of the cross. Uh, communion is one of the most foolish things that we do, and I think it's fantastic. Uh, we gather together to celebrate uh, that this is our journey, that this is our story. We gather together to eat a meal with Jesus, to remember what he did, to invite him into our story and to participate in his story of pain. <clears throat> uh, so just for the, uh, the instructions for the meal, so we're going we're gonna to have the meal up here. So if, uh, if you could sort of in your own time find your way up this aisle and then proceed, uh, recede back that way when you're, when you're done. Uh, this is a, a meal that we share as a community. Uh, there are uh, some people who, who aren't able to share this meal with us and we understand that. Uh, we want this to be a meal that we share as people on the Jesus journey. And so if, if that's the journey that you are on, you are welcome at this table. <clears throat> the, uh, the Bible speaks about preparing yourself, um, about uh, participating in this meal with a right heart, uh, and that's where we want to be, uh, and that's where we hope you are. If, if you're not at that spot, that's fine. Uh, you are you're welcome to observe. Uh, you are welcome to participate with the same level of uh, uh, belonging in this space. Uh, so I'd like to call uh, some of the deacons forward. We're going to be sharing this, uh, serving this meal together. 
Uh, and I'm just going to offer a, a word of prayer over the, bless, over, the, over the elements. So come on up, deacons. Let's pray together. Our great God, we give you thanks for this day. We thank you for uh, the reminder of, uh, of your death and that your death is uh, a way that you connect with us that your pain helps you to understand our pain. And your resurrection and your redemption is a sign of hope that we too will be redeemed, that we too will be lifted up uh, into fellowship with the Father. God bless us as we participate in this meal together. Walk with us, lead and guide us, we pray. Amen.